0: We have a theory of action in the Jewish community that if you take the people who know the least and put them on the front lines, it will grow our community. And that is so mistaken. There are all these people that have years of experience in Jewish education and depth of culture. And I want to learn from them how we can do new and different things in our community.
1: From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Dan Smokler, Chief Innovation Officer at Hillel, and the founder of BASE, an exciting new way of promoting Jewish engagement using a hybrid approach that draws from experiences of different Jewish denominations. Dan's path has been a varied one. Before he became an Orthodox rabbi, Dan had stints as a labor union organizer and even lived in a teepee of the electrical grid for a year. Dan spoke to me about how his family history of philanthropy informs his own journey and his philosophy of Lechadesh hetayashan, renewing something old to inform his practice towards innovation. We also talked about the changes in rabbinical leadership and the delayed awakening that he believes is going to come out of the pandemic. Take a listen. Hi Daniel, it's great to have you. Pleasure. <laughs> Daniel and I and know each other for a long time, been a member of Jeff and Board, but uh also his his family foundation have been linked to my professional life for a couple of decades. It's really a pleasure. Be- before we jump into it, you know, knowing your parents and your family, for me, it's not a surprise that you're doing something connected to Judaism and to and to Jewish life. But is a surprise for you when you were growing up? Did you imagine that you'd be doing what you're doing now? It's a good question. Um, you know, I've, I've had a
0: lot of other incarnations before I ended up where I am now. I was a labor union organizer for a bunch of years. I had a small stint in Hollywood. I lived in a teepee off the electrical grid for a year. And uh, ever since I was a little boy, I had a deep intuitive sense of uh, holiness or the divine. And I also felt a deep solidarity with Amcha, with the Jewish people. But I never quite saw those things manifest in the Jewish world around me. And I had a very charismatic Hasidic teacher my parents introduced me to when I was in the third or fourth grade. And he led a kind of small scene out of his house. I always wanted to find places like that. Uh, And when I couldn't, I thought I had to create them, whether that's audacity or or intuition uh, for someone else to know. But I started tinkering and creating things when I was about 18 and it sort of snowballed from there. So being involved in creating new forms of Jewish life is intuitive to me um, and sort of is congruent with where I started from, I think.
1: I'm just curious from your previous incarnations, especially the library union organizer, is it harder or easier than being a rabbi? They're they're similar in
0: certain sense, like you're meeting with lots of people, at least the way I do rabbinics, you're meeting with lots of people one-on-one. You're hearing about what's important to them, and you're trying to introduce them to other people and motivate them to take steps to significantly improve their lives. Hmm. And usually what holds people back is fear. And uh Figuring out what motivates people and what their fears are is, is kind of essential. Um, but really at its core, it's about meeting lots and lots and lots of different people and talking to them and, and hearing what they're about. So I spend most of my time rabbinically, I don't really give sermons or or lead prayer services. I spend most of the time talking to people and, and really listening about what's important to them and and what they hope for in the world.
1: You you were trained as an Orthodox rabbi, correct?
0: Yeah, I did my ordination uh, through the Batey Den and uh, the rabbinic courts in Jerusalem in uh, 2005.
1: You devote your most of your Jewish activity to innovation, like to, to spiritual innovation. Now, walk us a little bit through what brings you to the realization that we need spiritual innovation. In other words, why now? Why what you do now is important?
0: Look, I think the questions that human beings and Jews face are the same um, across generations. There are eternal enduring questions that don't have resolutions or or solutions to them. you know, what is a good life? How should I live? What do I want to transmit to my children? Uh, what do I want to keep from my parents or reorganize? Uh, what is the nature of community? What am I obligated to? Who do I want to be in the world? Those are questions you explore in every generation and there are times where Jewish culture, speaks to those questions really profoundly and deeply. And there are times where the culture no longer seems to grapple with those questions. Right. And in those moments, people seek new forms. And I grew up and lived through one of those moments um, where the culture Jewishly around me that I that I had access to was not um, speaking to those questions. So that's the sort of root cause of spiritual innovation.
1: But but why do you think the culture doesn't speak to those questions? My theory is that as a society, we, we have devalued the answer to those sort of questions. We're looking for technical and technological solutions. Those are the models in society. I mean, Steve Jobs is a model... For young people is not somebody who's a theologian, you know, or a, or a, I, or a philosopher, right?
0: I would respectfully disagree. I, I would say that um in blue states, in urban settings, and with highly educated university people, that's true. But America's a profoundly religious country that um values religion and spirit greatly. And you just need to get outside of those few places to find it. And the reason why I think we don't, as a community, a Jewish community, value those things so much is because the bulk of the Jewish community emigrated from Eastern Europe between 1880 and 1920. And those people were mostly not religious. They practiced Yiddishkeit. And we're the heirs of that culture trying to retrofit itself into a very religious society. And that awkwardness is what creates the ambivalence.
1: But American religiosity, like, and I'm not an expert, from the outside, and you know, this is a conversation I have with a lot of my my Christian friends, American religiosity is very particular. Many of the mega churches and stuff like that are just, you know, entertainment. And, and I say this with love and respect. I don't think that they impact the way people conduct themselves in their lives. I don't think it gives them the type of, spirituality that they're looking for. In other words, we we have a very, for lack of a better term, market-oriented sort of religiosity in the United States, and that impacts the Jews as well. I, I see little depth in American religious life. Like, I don't see it any American living theologian, for example, that challenges our understanding of God, society, humanity. I see a lot of conflation of politics and religion, but that actually makes for shallow politics and shallow religion. I hear what you're
0: saying. I I would underline the word depth and say that there are particular forms of American religious experience that are powerful and have been absorbed unwittingly by the Jewish community. I'll, I'll give you an example. When I study Torah with people who haven't learned so much before, they'll often say phrases like, what I hear in this verse or what this text is really saying to me, well, that's a particular way of reading scripture that comes out of evangelical culture, right. that believes that the word of God through scripture speaks directly to you. But they didn't get it from a church. They probably got those phrases from popular culture and other places like 12-step meetings. So right. I think the depth of American religion is found outside of learned theologians and in those other expressions um, and in some of the movements
1: we see. So give me give me an example. That's something that that yeah. inspires you in the general society and think, even though we disagree with them ideologically, that the way they operate and the way yeah. the spirituality talks to you.
0: I would say 12 steps programs are indigenous to the United States. Mm-hmm. And I have my problems with that and other people have their problems. But the idea that Americans created a unique form of gathering together that invokes the name of God, that's pluralistic, that. uh is non-evangelical, but is attractive and seems to serve a wide variety of things and has gone global, is an incredible religious achievement.
1: And it produces change in behavior, ultimately is geared towards behavior, which- Yeah, way, yeah. It might not be like my bag you know, or what
0: I'm interested in, but I, I have a lot of respect for it. Right. I have a great deal of respect for Mormon uh, practice. The idea that the Mormon church has shlichut and sends its young people out for two years of service the profound organization of community that they practice, also a Native American, meaning indigenous to the United States, not the original right. peoples here. That also inspires me. And some Jewish things here inspire me, too,
1: you know. Walk us a little bit through your adventures in innovation space, from Base Hillel to what you're doing now. Uh, yes, I I was
0: hired as the first Chief Innovation Officer at Hill International by Eric Fingerhut, mm-hmm. and he friend of the house. Yeah, and he gave me a lot of space to try things and experiment. Um, in retrospect, I I have ever more gratitude and respect for him for giving me that space. And one of the first ideas we came up with was called Base. And I I just want to be clear, like. Innovation for me, I, I draw on the idea of Rav Cook, which is L'Chadesh Yashan. You're trying to right. renew something that's old. You're not coming up with a new idea out of nowhere. So base was essentially the idea of doing Chabad, mm-hmm. which uh, is a practice rather than a movement of a couple using their home as a base of operations for engaging people in Jewish life, but right. decoupling it from orthodoxy and messianism and all that goes along with it. So we uh, built a series of homes in New York and Miami and Berlin and Chicago uh, with different kinds of couples, different uh, genders, different denominations and backgrounds who all open their home to young people for hospitality, learning and service.
1: Interesting. And did, did something surprise you about the way that they sort of progressed and developed
0: you know, innovation is is a lot of the time for me is about learning things you just didn't know. And oftentimes what you set out to do takes you to something else. So the first thing I learned is that the rabbis we were training in the United States were wonderful, but were not um, entrepreneurial in their disposition. So the idea of going out and talking to lots of people and getting a crowd was a new practice. For many rabbis that they they sort of expected the title rabbi to come with Jews included and (laughs) they're included in the title rabbi, you have to get them. Um, So we had to figure out how to teach people how to get the Jews. And then that led us into other projects, which was, you know, thinking about how to. Help rabbis build the kinds of communities they want to serve, which then became yet another uh, innovation
1: project. And in, in what did you find that worked best? When you're saying we had to teach rabbis how to go and and seek Jews, like I you'd say lechav, you know, but I seek my brethren, right? Like, what are the practices that that work while seeking your brethren? Um, people tend to be
0: scared of reaching out and talking to people unlike them. So, the first assignment we gave to every new rabbi was go have 180 coffee dates, right. go talk to 180 people. And they'd say, I don't, how do I get them? I don't know them. And we would say, well, let's make a list of all the people you do know. And then um, they'd say, well, I only know 30. They'd say, well, let's start asking them who they know. And then once we get 180 names, we'll start seeing who you've met and who you haven't met. None of these skills are innovative. They're like what basic... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's sometimes
1: it's... As you say, Rav Cook, is to renew the ancient. Taking
0: basic community organizing practices. And there's a woman named Rebecca Blady who started the base in Berlin. And she did this practice so well over Zoom that when she showed up in Berlin for her first Shabbat... They had 60 people waiting for them for the dinner, and she had never set foot there because she had done the organizing ahead of time.
1: Okay, so you go and you meet people. Right. But that's half the way. So how do you have a meaningful conversation is kind of an art that as a society also we seem to be losing. So, yeah, I can have coffee with somebody, but do we have the skills and the sensitivities to have those conversations? You know, we've lost
0: a lot of them and some of them are concrete and you can learn them you know like when you have a couple who's having a hard time in their marriage and they go to counseling yeah. the counselor just has them oftentimes practice listening and mirroring right, right? So basic skills so like one basic skill is is you actually have to ask people open ended questions and right. wait for the answer
1: that that's hard for a lot of people to yeah. do especially for rabbis speaking not listening yeah that's fascinating and um I'm wondering, thinking out loud here, it would be great for our community to kind of, this is something we don't do well, which is to sort of capitalize on that experience. Like there you have a wealth of experience and knowledge in terms of how to connect with Jews of diverse backgrounds. You know, we're not benefiting from it. Note to self, this is something we should do. Now tell me from from base, we moved over to create the Office of Innovation Right. So
0: we grew a team of people and the way to think about it is really like a studio. If you imagine a studio um, is kind of a creative place where art happens or dance or music or movies. Mm -hmm. And there's a team of creative people in there who are trying to build projects that they then send out into the world. So we have a studio of eight people or so, and it grows and shrinks depending on the projects. And we grow new projects and we send them out in the world. Lahav deal, you know, we're nothing like it, but the way that, you know, Alvin Ailey would or Martha Graham or a movie studio would say, this is our body of work. And we train people and then they go out and they do the work as well. So what are the actual
1: products that the Office of
0: Innovation produces? So we started a project. There was an existing program at NYU called Jewish Learning Fellowship, the 10-week program that introduced uh, moderately affiliated people to the study of Torah. Mm -hmm. We took that program and I taught it and I thought everyone was coming to hear my great chuchmaz, my wisdom and my insights. And when we talked to people afterwards, what they were really getting as freshmen in college was a group of friends, a sense of belonging and a mentor and good conversation. So then we we took the same program, but we began describing it as this is how you can find a group of friends, a mentor, a sense of belonging and have different conversations. And the Jewish Learning Fellowship grew from one class at NYU to just over, I think it's two hundred and ninety campuses right now, graduating about 6,000 people a year. And it's in the DNA of how a lot of Hillel's do their organizing and teaching and learning. And there are literally over a thousand People who have taught the Jewish Learning Fellowship as HILA professionals, we're now building a version of that for young couples called Eun. And so I'm thinking of like the parents of kids being enrolled in JCCs or folks that just moved to a new town, people that are building a home together. And so we think that that time is ripe for having these kinds of conversations.
1: Uh, There's a lot to unpack in what you said. A lot of things that, that this makes me think. The, the first one is the the role of coaching and mentoring when it comes to Jewish life, right? Like this is a culture that everything is about coaching and mentoring and people do these courses about life coaches and what have you. And what you're saying is really intriguing because you're saying, well, we could use that in the Jewish world, like meaning somebody that is your mentor when it comes to learning Torah and getting to know your own Judaism, Right.
0: Yeah. I I mean, everybody needs a person like that. You know, one of the things that we found was really interesting is if you ask people, do you want to learn Torah or upgrade your Jewish knowledge? They say no. Or they say, I I would, but I don't have no time. But if you give them something that they can teach and you say, let me show you how to teach
1: this class, even if you're not an expert,
0: they suddenly become curious and interested and thirsty and ready to learn and they come back to you for more.
1: The second thing that is really interesting in what you're saying is that the way of innovation that you're proposing is not radical change. It's basically, as it were, weaponizing Jewish traditional strategies, or, you know, practices like learning, like Habruta, like, you know, a coach, you know, a Reve in the Stetel was a coach in a way, a life coach too. Somebody noted that, you know, invention is like you know, inventory, You're, you basically reshuffle the things that you have, and that's innovation. You do a lot of decoupling of ideas, like I'll take this part, but not that, yeah. or
0: mashing new things up together. Very little of it is radically different. I mean, chimpanzees share 98 or 99% of the DNA as human beings, so the 1% right. is really meaningful, what you do a little bit differently.
1: Which is kind of interesting because our culture thinks about innovation in the lone genius model, right? Like somebody that has one radical idea, light bulb moment, you know. And in fact, it's very different than that. We think of it as a churn.
0: Right. It's an endless series of conversations. You want to talk to and listen to as many people as you possibly can. And innovation also has in it new stuff for the good. So if it's not good, just because it's new, we don't have to keep it. Like not everything that's new is very good. Some things that are new are are really awful. So we have to create new good things.
1: So what is an example of something that you try to do that uh, an innovation that you thought, oh, this is going to work and it didn't. And and, and what did you learn from it? There was a dating app about 10 years ago, one of the first Jewish dating apps, you know,
0: when people were swiping to date. Yeah. They're a team of investors. and. Uh, we were going to buy it because we thought the data would be wonderful for reaching new Jews, that we would have right. all this access to data. And we put some money and time and effort and a lot of meetings into it. And I realized uh, at some point that I didn't know a thing about running a tech company or about data or about apps, or I, I was way over my head. So it was lovely. I had an idea. And I was just completely out of my realm, and so that turned into nothing except for a learning experience. The money didn't go anywhere, and it fell flat. But um, I appreciated the effort because it, it taught me at least how to fail, and it taught me how to uh, how to try some new things, and it also taught me what I was what I was good at, what I wasn't good at, and it right. out tech was not something I was good at.
1: But but let me push you a little bit further. There is there something in which like this is clear. Like the program in itself, swiping up is not. You were just buying it. You, you weren't creating it. I'm talking about something that you said, this innovation can work, but it didn't. Or it did, but in a way that is very different than what we thought. Sort of, Leavdil, something like uh, Viagra was created as a hard medicine. It failed as a hard medicine, but oh, it has a side effect.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really... Interesting, interesting question. So I'll give you an example. I, as a rabbi, I perform about 40 conversions a year and I, I do orthodox conversions. So people often think orthodox conversions or any kind of conversion is about uh, one person joining the Jewish people mm-hmm. rarely in the context of families. It's usually about activating a couple and a family and a whole network of relationships And the conversion is not about gatekeeping, but it's a liminal life moment where you can create um, the opportunity for someone to be profoundly engaged in Judaism. So when I first got into it, I thought what I was doing was certifying the kashrut of like a particular person and making sure that they were up to our standards. And then what I realized is actually this was an incredible educational moment where whatever we did here, the person was going to leave with an understanding of what it meant to be a part of our family. And so that rewired how we did conversion entirely.
1: Very interesting. And it could change actually the way the community thinks about conversion, really. As a collective experience more than an individual one. Conversion is the most underutilized opportunity in the
0: Jewish community right now. There is a huge unmet need of people that want to be adopted by the Jewish family or want to adopt the Jewish family. And uh, we, we simply have not understood that yet at all.
1: Yeah, and I find that conversion generally is very powerful for, and especially in the case, in couples that go to the conversion with one of the spouses is Jewish. It's very powerful for the Jewish part too, meaning everybody reconnects with the tradition, not just the person that is undergoing conversion.
0: Yeah, that's right. And the data supports that very strongly.
1: So you talk about spiritual searches and I have this theory and I just want to run it by you that the pandemic actually is going to make the quest for meaning much more acute. I think that we're not we're not aware yet of that. But the pandemic implies a big brush with death and every brush with death sort of makes you sensitive to the big questions, the the questions you were mentioning at the beginning. Do you see that happening and then if you do, do you think we're equipped to have those conversations?
0: It's definitely happening. And uh, most people don't want to engage those conversations because they're scary. And, and I share that. There are days I don't want to think about it. Uh, my son learned about the Holocaust in school this year. And mm. he said to me, six million Jews died. Right, daddy? And I said, yes. And he said, well, didn't a million Americans die last year? And I said, Yes. And he said, why doesn't anybody care? I said, What do you mean? And he says, Well, everyone keeps talking about moving on and going forward and hybridity, or you know, he didn't use that word, but he's talking about zoom or whatever. He said, But why doesn't anybody care? Right. And I think we don't realize that the openness for meaning has to contend with grief and loss and the reality to, to have predictability. So it might be years before we see that awakening. How many years did it take after the Shoah for people to realize the value of of Yiddish and needing yeah. to revive it and find it again and and work on it.
1: Right. right. But even the, to talk even to talk in theological terms about the Shoah was yes. only done, you know, after 67 when Jews finally felt that they were safe, they opened up to speak about the Shoah. Right, and in the, and theological terms I mean. Exactly, exactly. And and the pandemic
0: you know, we as a community often think it's about whether we're going to broadcast our um, Saturday morning service and Friday night or right. live. And what's really going on, though, is people had this moment to have their lives radically shaken up and they're thinking questions like, um, do I want to live this life with this job or be with this partner? Who am I? Is this how I'm going to end up? Where do I want to be? How am I using my time? Um, people are, are willing to experiment in bold ways. And so there's this moment of openness and we we really have to let it be and not try and turn
1: it into a series of technical fixes, like doing Zoom better or something. You know, after every pandemic in history, it took time, or after every traumatic event in history, there was a spiritual reckoning. Like after the Black Death, there was the Reformation. And after the Spanish flu Boris and Heisenberg came up with a, I mean, it took them 10 years, but it came up with the uncertainty principle. And you don't have to be a psychologist to realize that these people had gone through a world war onto the flu pandemic. And of course, what they're thinking about the unpredictability of things. And then they see maybe that's how the fabric of the universe is unpredictable through quantum theory. What I'm trying to say is that those are very deep questions that emerge out of a deep sense of trauma. And as you say, the technical fixes, and I'm going to cut it.
0: Yeah, the, the places where you're going to see really exciting things happen are going to be in the non-conventional, in creative spaces, in experimentation. Um, and you you can see it around the margins right now. Right. Some really interesting efforts to grapple with this. My response to the pandemic when we first went into lockdown in March was to start learning Parshat shavua with friends of mine around the country. And we did that for two and a half years every single week. Uh, learns the Parsha and the tour learning that emerged from that experience was more interesting and urgent and creative than anything I had seen in the last 10 years. I'm not saying the stuff I brought for the stuff I, I heard from other people, uh, because the questions were real and, and people were alive. So we, we have to keep that kind of opportunity and space open for people.
1: In terms of speaking and keeping things open, is there something like innovation fatigue, meaning you work on innovation, you've been doing it for 15 years now. I mean, you've been doing it always, but officially for, for a lot of years. How do you keep that innovative spark lit? Such a good question. I I, I wish I had like
0: a, you know, a pat answer for it. I don't. The fatigue is real. And I think that's true in anyone who practices what they do, um, whether that's a doctor or, or an artist, you know, or a welder. Um, right. you, you create a, a level of fatigue. For me, there, there are people who have the itch to tinker and build with things. and It's like a personality problem or something. And <laughs> so the way you can find an entrepreneur is you yeah. say to them, could you give me a list of all the things that you've built before? And they can just start naming things. I did this this because they can't help it. So I personally can't help it. I tried tinkering and building new things during COVID and before and after, and the work is better or worse, but um, some of it you can't fatigue from because it's just, it's wired into how you see
1: the world. For me, actually it's two things. I mean, it's a lot of things, but, but mostly two things. One is, Cognitive diversity, like I all the time surround myself with different people and that keeps me on my toes, as it were, intellectually. And the other one is something that I practice not always very successfully, which is what Heschel called radical amazement. I try to be surprised about everything. I turn on the light and I say, like, I flip a switch and there is light. Be surprised about everything. Yeah. And, you know, and, and look at simple things with that. I think there's such a relentless pressure to innovate all the time in our society that it it's complicated, right? I give you
0: something that that's been profound for me when when the lockdown started, I was in the country with my kids. Mm-hmm. And one of the last stores that closed was a bait shop. They sell bait for fishing yeah. and I went with like a couple hundred bucks. and I said just I was like, give me everything you got. We got to do something here. And my kids and I started fishing. And uh, now it's probably my greatest passion. And we've done it, fished every river and lake and pier. And we've caught everything from, you know, bass to carp to sharks to manta rays, whatever. But the process of learning a new practice that people have been doing for a long time, much better than me, uh, was really interesting. And it's it's also this practice where there's a lot of tinkering and a lot of right. around and making it up. Like there is no great way to do a rig that you can't improve upon. So doing that changed the way I think and feel about the world. And if I could do anything like to come up with new projects or or things, it would be to fish because it activates a different part of,
1: of uh, your brain. And learning this new skill is, is kind of interesting because it's both about feeling empowered, but also being humbled. As you say, you're, you're tinkering with techniques of fishing. And I know absolutely nothing about fishing. But you're also humbled because you realize, oh, my God, people have been doing this for ages and I'm a neophyte here, but yet I can do it. It's this empowered humility that helps you innovate, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's beyond humble. Like the, I remember we used to fish this place called Laurel Lake in the Berkshires when we first got started and there, there's this like Russian family. And these guys just seem to pull up like pike after pike after pike. <laughs> these guys just could get anything out of the water. Yeah. And I literally cast on like my second day and fell face first into the lake (laughs) and like ending up in the water with the fish and we didn't get anything for a while, but looking at them, you know, you both have to sort of, um, see like, can I copy what they're doing? Can I ask? It's, it becomes this process for thinking about how you learn and what you can improve upon.
1: And Ultimately, innovation is, is learning. It's another way of learning. But in this process of learning and changing and innovating, yeah. what's, what's next for the Office of Innovation? I want to um, come up with several strategies for
0: creating a thousand rabbis in the next five years. Wow. We need... Wait, wait, wait. What, do you mean? what do you mean creating a thousand rabbis? We don't have enough rabbis to serve the people that are out there. We're in a moment where people desperately want rabbis. Uh-huh. And we don't have enough and there's no seminary that's gonna do it alone. It's gonna be a collective process. And so we're coming up with several different strategies to say like, these are the different ways that we could do this. It's sort of like STEM teachers. Like if America wanted to be competitive, we need a lot more people doing physics and math. We need a lot more rabbis out there. We're working on a conversion project now where I think we need to create a platform where anyone who wants to adopt the Jewish family or be adopted by the Jewish family can do so. And then we're growing our Center for Rabbinic Innovation, which is now called ATRA, and EUN, our learning project, and several others. Like, you know, you have to have like a list of, of sort of dreams. You know, another one I, I wish we could do uh, sooner is um, a post-Haredi Fellowship. Wow. All these people coming out of the Haredi world, and we have the ability to give them social services, but we don't yet have the ability to tap their creativity and
1: insight for the future of Judaism. And and those people are, I mean, you can't generalize, but a, a big number of them, they don't want to cut links with Judaism, rather the opposite. They want to find a synthesis of some sort, correct? Right. We have a theory of action
0: in the Jewish community that if you take the people who know the least and put them on the front lines, it will grow our community. And that is so mistaken. There are (laughs) all these people that have years of experience in Jewish education and depth of culture, and I want to learn from them how we can do new and different things in our community. And we don't have the ability to do that yet.
1: Very interesting. So it's it's a a very different approach. If we can shift gears here for Mm. a minute. You're an innovator. You're an activist, but you're also a funder. You right. come from a philanthropic family, and now you're you're much more active in the family philanthropy. So, talk to me a little bit about that. What philanthropic practice did you grow up with, and why are you innovating upon that, as it were?
0: Yeah, my my uncle was a guy named Bill Berman, who was a philanthropist, and uh, and my parents had been philanthropists and in very different ways. I've been around it for a long time, but for me, it's been a way to, to really learn deeply from my parents, you know, like my father, for instance, I I can't tell you how many times I've been with him at Hillel's or at JDC sites where he would just talk to not the staff, but the average people and say, "Um, if you could build anything, what would it be? Tell me why. And can you dream with me? So that practice of dreaming big or, I've seen him yeah. a lot of times meet entrepreneurs and offer to invest in them as a catalyst and just say like, that's a great idea here, go do it now. Don't lose time. Right. So that right. practice of dreaming and catalyzing is something like my
1: family's been really interested in. I actually had a privilege of seeing, seeing your dad doing that. Yeah. Like actually going to uh, talking to the people, talking to the clients were interesting. He was always more interested in that, you know, he is. And uh, I think my parents are really committed to,
0: um, you know, the large organizations, like people use these terms like legacy organizations that drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. I believe really deeply in Federation and JCCs and the JDC and all these organizations, I think, um, have taken responsibility for the Jewish people in ways that nothing else has. So I think the real question is, what do we learn from them? And how do we work together? So that's also important for me philanthropically.
1: Yeah, which is which is really interesting for us at JFN, we, we try to look at what I call communal philanthropy and private philanthropy as, as two sides of the same coin, like yeah. meaning federations need individual philanthropy because individual philanthropy has a ha- much higher tolerance for risk right. than a communal body. But if federations or JDC or Jaffe didn't exist, funders would need to create them. And they may be imperfect. But they are they're necessary. And actually, that's another thing that came out of the pandemic, how necessary those organizations are. Right. right. And the other thing I think that's that
0: I I really learned from my mom and my dad is um, trusting the knowledge of the people that do the work. There There are friends I have who are funders who really believe that because they're successful in finance or in tech, that allows them to speculate about what's good for the Jewish community as though I could show up at like a large a hedge fund and say, well, you know, I can lead Mincha. So can I now talk to you about your portfolio? It's sort of a bizarre idea. So my my folks really believe in the people running the organization. If you find good people, then you you got to trust them and go along with them. And, and I, right. I've seen that from them.
1: Yeah. Which is funny. Now everybody, everybody talks about what they call trust-based philanthropy, but in fact, folks have been practicing that forever. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, you you find the best people and you and you set them free to do what they know how to do best.
0: Yeah. Or you put them in relationships with people that can be like a bar plug to like someone to right. argue with them and and have counterpoints.
1: And how do you see your philanthropy changing going forward? My wife
0: Erin and I have tried to bet big on a mm. few entrepreneurs and institutions. And it's been more of a kind of venture approach. And I think as we're getting older now, we're seeing the value in board participation more. um, And I'm learning that more. And so there's a part of me that is just wondering what is the best use that we can get out of the resources we have as human beings, you know, Mm -hmm. as people working in the community, as folks volunteering and as folks giving. And so that I think that equation changes as you age too, like we've got three little kids at home. And so I'm, I'm beginning to think more about participating in boards and strategy just, and also because I've worked in the space for about 20 years now.
1: Isn't that though a double-edged sword, right? Because you work in the space. So there is a temptation there and is the best player, the best coach and is the best communal professional, the best board member?
0: No, they're, they're not. It's completely different skills. Like, I am definitely not I'm a better player than coach. Like in this right. metaphor, like I'm not as good a philanthropist as the people I see out there, like um, my colleagues, you know, who do extraordinary work. Like I work very closely with a lay leader, Ariel Wiener, mm-hmm. who is light years ahead of where I am in thinking about this stuff. So that there, there are people that are really far down the road so yeah you have to have some self-awareness of what you're capable right. of My best use is always going to be working in the community rather than funding the community
1: I I always need to remind myself that I'm not advocating for my own things or for my the projects I want to do I'm advocating for the organization that I'm sitting the board of that's a challenge for funders sometimes right like you're not in a board to quote unquote protect your investment. You're on a board because you believe in what the organization does and, and its mission. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. And uh, as this generational chain continues, how do you, you know, I know your kids a little, but how do you uh, instill those values in them or try to?
0: We try and follow the practice that's described in the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, to mm-hmm. give staka before every chag we celebrate Jewish holidays is the first step before there's any, you know, looking for chametz on Pesach or building the sukkah or lighting Hanukkah candles. The first thing we do is we give money away and we try and do that in the form directly to people in our neighborhood or to organizations. You know, it needs to be more concrete for kids than to give to an abstract fund. Um, When little, we used to take them and they would make soup and sandwiches and give it to the homeless folks that we knew in the neighborhood or... Or through local agencies, but for us, the step now is to couple the idea of the celebration of the chagim begins and is enabled by tzedakah.
1: Very powerful, actually. Like there's no.
0: Ask us in twenty years if it actually works. <laughs> no, you know,
1: well, hey, you can when in a few years they can they can be part of honeycomb and uh, right. our teen philanthropy program. Amen. Just to close this fascinating conversation, and of course, I hope it's going to be one of many. When you look at the Jewish world and the problems that we have, and but also the things that you do and the people you meet, what gives you hope? Oh, my God. I mean, you can hold two feelings
0: at once. Like things are, are hard, but we live in a moment where there are more people learning Torah than ever before in Jewish history. Jews are safer and freer, even with the rising tide of anti-Semitism than they've ever been in Jewish history. We have a state of Israel. We have Zionism. Uh, we have more capital able to invest in the Jewish community than we've ever had before. And we have more ability to connect to one another. If we squander this moment, you know, it's, it's on us. This is the moment for extraordinary things to happen. There's just no doubt about it. You can say that and feel that we've gone through a pandemic and lost people and all the other stuff that's going on, and the fragility of our democracy. But you have to be able to hold, you know, two candles at
1: once. Thanks so much to Dan Snokler To learn more about the work Dan is doing with ATRA, the Center for Rabbinic Innovation, visit centerforrabbinicinnovation.org. Thank you so much for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to share with us. Please write us at communication at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at JFunders. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Spokoini. I leave you now with a quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel who said an individual dies when they cease to be surprised. I am surprised every morning when I see the sun shine again, when I see an act of evil. I don't accommodate. I don't accommodate myself to the violence that goes on everywhere. I am still so surprised. That is why am I against it. We must learn to be surprised. So keep being surprised, keep giving and join us next time on What Gives.